Hello, I'm Rebecca Deschwinitz, and as a member of the Dialogue Foundation Board, I'm pleased to welcome you all to Dialogue Gospel Study on 3rd Nephi 1 through 7 with our guest instructor, Dr. Michael Ng. Fellow board members Michael Austin and Christian Kimball are joining me and will be helping out with technical issues and our discussion. Speaking of technical issues, uh, we apologize for last time when we met together, the uh, unexpected uh, quick cutoff. Uh, we meant to just stop recording, but ended up ending the meeting. So um, our apologies and um, sorry to have missed the extended discussion that I know that I enjoy and that many of our, our uh, participants enjoy. Uh, as usual, those joining on Zoom will be able to post comments and ask questions through the chat function. We always enjoy the insights and rich discussion that's happening there and love being able to bring some of your questions and comments into our conversation about the lesson's themes. As always, please be respectful and relevant as you participate on chat. We are also live on Facebook, so welcome to folks tuning in there and to the many people who later tune in on our podcast network or YouTube channel to enjoy these lessons. Speaking of which, our previous lessons are all available on, in video and podcast form. Check us out at dialoguejournal.com where you can also find the entire 50 plus years of the, the journal. If you enjoy these gospel study lessons and Dialogue's other long-standing efforts to promote diverse perspectives and some of the faith's most vibrant thinking through scholarship, poetry, fiction, personal essays, visual art, and more, we invite you to help support Dialogue's mission and initiatives. There's a donate link on dialoguejournal.com and we'll also post a phone number you can text to become a Dialogue supporter. We are thrilled to have Professor Michael D.K. Ng teaching us today. Michael uh, Ng is an associate professor in the Department of Religious Studies at Indiana University, where he explores ethics in early Chinese thought and has more recently moved into studying native Hawaiian thought. He graduated with a bachelor's degree from Brigham Young University, a master's degree from Harvard Divinity School, and a PhD from Harvard's East Asian Department. He is the author of two monographs, The Dysfunction of Ritual in Early Confucianism, and The Vulnerability of Integrity in Early Confucian Thought, both published by Oxford University Press. He recently completed a translation of an early Chinese text that purports to contain the teachings of figures such as Confucius about creating a good society, and is now working on a book about themes of grief and resilience in fifth century Chinese poetry. He is also a dialogue author. His scholarship for us has addressed topics of comparative uh, religion. Dr. Ng is currently serving in his ward's bishopric, as well as on Dialogue's editorial board. We are grateful to him for his willingness to share his insights and his preparation today. As is true with any Latter-day Saint scripture study class, the views expressed in this lesson will be those of the individual teacher and do not necessarily reflect those of the Dialogue Foundation, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or any other organization. We begin today with music. The night is come light to the day, arranged by Ralph Vaughn Williams and sung by the Cardiff Festival Choir. After that, Dr. Janice Johnson will offer our opening prayer. Dr. Johnson is a research fellow at the Maxwell Institute at Brigham Young University. She was a general editor of the Mountain Meadows Massacre, Complete Legal Papers, and co-author of The Witness of Women. 
She's currently working on books on the Mountain Meadows prosecution and a super exciting project on early Book of Mormon reception that has taken her to archives all over the place. And she's paying special attention to marginalia and how folks are responding. And I'm super excited about that. Music. Technical difficulties here. Do the prayer first and we'll do the music afterwards. I've got to reboot something. <clears throat> okay. Our dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this day. We are thankful that today is the Sabbath, that we might turn ourselves and focus more on Thee. We are thankful for the Book of Mormon. We are thankful for the influence that it has in our lives. And we would ask thee that thou would bless us, that we might be able to more deeply understand and understand thy will concerning us. We pray for the world right now, for all those who are physically and emotionally and economically um, affected by COVID and all of the unrest in the world, that we might know how that would have us act in the world to, to make it a better place and to bring unity and uh, opportunity and equality for, for all of thy children. We love thee and are thankful for all the many blessings we have. And we say these things in the name of thy son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. I'd like to thank uh, Rebecca Christian. Michael Austin and Taylor Petrie for making all of the arrangements um, for the chance to come in and speak to you here today. Um, I, as Rebecca had mentioned, uh, do my work in Chinese philosophy where if you present at a conference, uh, it's much more common to have maybe 15, sometimes 30 people attending, but never as much as 189 or something that we have here today. Uh, so I'm also quite pleased that we're going to be meeting uh, or meeting here virtually. That way, I don't have to see such a large crowd. I'm going to move to screen sharing right now um, and uh, share a presentation that I put together um, for today. Um, I'll be discussing Third Nephi chapters one through seven. There we go. I'll be discussing Third Nephi chapters uh, one through seven. And because of the large crowd, at least I've found on Zoom that I'll be using primarily a lecture format, although I'll be happy to, uh, of course, stick around as, as long as people would like to discuss things afterwards. And feel free to carry on in the uh, chat function, although um, I also, uh, for the most part, won't be able to pay attention uh, to that. I'm gonna begin here by giving an overview of 1 Nephi 3, chapters one through seven. I will say this is probably the most boring part of the uh, presentation. I'm going to underwhelm you so that it'll be much easier to overwhelm you afterwards. Uh, nonetheless, what you're gonna see here in 1 Nephi um, 1, or excuse me, 3 Nephi 1 through seven is gonna cover a roughly 33 year period, right? So this is after, uh, after Samuel the Lamanite and his prophecies about the coming of Jesus. This roughly covers the period from the birth of Jesus to shortly before his death. 
What we find um, in these passages is first an introduction to the main figures that are involved in the book. We're led into the year 91, kept track by the reign of the judges. This is going to shift in just a second, where Laconius is the chief judge and Nephi, the son of Nephi, is now put in charge of the plates. This is for whom the book of third Nephi is, of course, named. As we move through uh, the chapters, we see that in the uh, next year, the prophecies of the prophets began to be fulfilled, specifically here referring again to Samuel the Lamanite and the coming of Jesus. However, his major prophecy, this idea of um, no darkness at the, uh, the night of Jesus's birth has not been fulfilled. And so there, there were some who began to say that the time was past. Uh, these people round up the believers and threaten them with death. And lo and behold, at the going down of the sun at that day, there was no darkness. And because of that, we come to learn that the more part of the people did believe. So what we're going to see as these years progress is, of course, this kind of back and forth, this movement of the uh, society at the time between some kind of belief and disbelief and iniquity. The next year, we see that for the most part, it did pass away in peace, save it were for the Gadiantin robbers. And we, of course, see here a kind of foreshadowing of the troubles that are going to be coming about in the next series of years. The following year, the Gadiantin robbers begin to increase, and the people in the next year began to forget those signs and wonders that they had seen. They waxed strong in wickedness, and over the next four years, we see that they continued and still did remain uh, in wickedness. However, a significant thing occurs with regard to keeping track of time. Uh, Mormon tells us that at least he is going to be keeping track of time according to the sign of Christ's birth, which at this point had occurred, of course, 10 years previous. So what we then um, come to find in this passage is the continuing uh, of the people at the time, right, passed away here in iniquity, in year 13, there were wars and contentions throughout the land. Lamanites, however, unite with the Nephites, and we find here that their curse was taken from them, their skin then becomes white. In year 14, the war did become exceedingly sore between the people and the Gadiantin robbers, and the sword of destruction did hang over them because of their iniquity. At this point, an epistle arrives from uh, Gideonhai, who is the leader of the Gadianton robbers. And he says to essentially yield yourselves up unto me and unite with us. Right? Yield yourselves up unto us and unite with us. And as a part of this epistle, he explains, um, hang on one second here. He explains that uh, he's writing this because this might, he's, he's trying to make this argument because my, such that his people may recover their rights and government. Right, so, of course, there's a whole backstory that we're not privy to. Mormon, however, interjects, uh, lest we come to believe that the Gadiantin robbers had any good reason for saying this, Mormon's quick to tell us that they had received no wrong, save it were that they had wronged themselves by dissenting away unto those wicked and abominable robbers. So what happens is that they, of course, uh, deny or refute um, Gideonhai's offer. And Laconius orders all people to gather together with supplies and to repent. At the same time, um, Gidgadonai is named commander of the armies, and he's called a great prophet and a chief judge. This is going to set the stage for the next series of years.
we're told that they did fortify themselves against their enemies and they did dwell in one land and in one body, right? So they gather all of their supplies up together. In year 18, the robbers begin to come down and they essentially lay siege to this one body of the, uh, the Nephites and the Lamanites. However, after some time, the robbers run out of supplies and because they run out of supplies, they then initiate battle with the Nephites. We're told here by Mormon that there was never that there never was known so great a slaughter among the people of Lehi, right? So we're introduced again to the kind of this great battle. Nephites win, however, and do not spare any that should fall into their hands. In year 21, we're told that the, the Gadianton robbers uh, get a new leader, Zemnariha. They again lay siege, but again run out of supplies. Gidgodoni surrounds them and takes prisoners who they eventually preach to with the word of God. Zemnariha is then hanged on a tree, and then the tree is cut down. Upon cutting down the tree, the people state, may the Lord preserve his people in righteousness and in holiness of heart, that they may cause to be felled to the earth all who shall seek to slay them. We're then told there was not a living soul among all the people who did doubt in the least. So we see here again the shift to the, uh, of the people back to this idea of righteousness. And thus it had put an end to all those abominable combinations. Now, this isn't the end of the story, of course. As the narrative unfolds, we're told that in years 22 through 25, great and marvelous things did transpire. And then in the following years, everyone returns to their lands. You'll recall that they had uh, grouped together into one body to push back or to kind of keep the Gadianton robbers at bay. During these years, they also began again to prosper and to wax great, and there was great order in the land. Many cities were built anew and many old cities repaired. In the 28th year, the people had continual peace. In the 29th year, however, we see again this hint that not all things are good. Some were lifted up unto pride and boastings because of their exceedingly great riches. They began to be distinguished by ranks, and a great inequality in all the land came up, such that the church began to be broken up. In year 30, we're told that the people were then in a state of awful wickedness. At the same time, we then have men inspired from heaven that arrive and are sent forth. These men, however, are put to death. Secret covenants are also made to then establish a king as a ruler over the people. This signals the very end of the judges, this kind of system of government that had been going on. And instead, we now see the emergence of tribes. So people form their governmental systems according to much smaller groups. We're told by Mormon that the more righteous part of the people had nearly all become wicked. Some of them name a king over them, a man named Jacob. They, Jacob and his people, then flee to the north. In the 31st year, the tribes have some degree of peace, we're told. Nevertheless, their hearts were turned from the Lord. Nephi, who reappears now in the narrative, ministered with power and with great authority. There were, but, however, were few who were converted unto the Lord. Nephi, in the intervening years, nevertheless, keeps preaching. And we find by the end of the 33rd year that many were baptized unto repentance. This then sets the stage, of course, for the arrival of Jesus in the, uh, the following chapters. But what we see here is, are a number of, of, of really significant themes, uh, many of which we're not going to have time to explore. I'll just mention some of them. 
One is this question of how societies shift from good to bad so quickly and what that means from the perspective of the authors writing these accounts. We see this question of race again come up among the Lamanites and the Nephites. A number of issues with regard to war, right? The most gruesome war to, to date in the Book of Mormon occurs in these passages. And of course, the punishments for those involved in war with at times not sparing any prisoners, at other times hanging the leader of the rebel of the rebels right on this uh, on this tree and making some kind of a statement by cutting down the tree afterwards we also see a shift in governmental structure away from uh, this reign of the judges as well as a new way of timekeeping again all a number of very very interesting things what i'm going to do though for uh, the remainder of our time is to focus on a close reading of years 29 through 30 which are covered in Third uh, Nephi chapter six. So the big thing that I'm going to kind of push on here with regard to these passages is that Third Nephi six gives us a very important lesson about the limits of ecclesiastical authority. I'm gonna unpack that for you uh, throughout the uh, remainder of this presentation. Kind of the big question though this is gonna address is who or what can we depend on as a source for what is right and what is good? And this is, a, again, a question of authority. All right, so let me begin um, by uh, offering a couple of stories, right? So now here again is this transition away from this broader narrative to the more specific. The first story that I wanna share is about a woman uh, named Alyssa Peterson, right? So in August of 2002, uh, Assistant Attorney General J.S. Bybee provided legal advice to the President of the United States on captured Taliban and other terrorist operatives. The memo in part endorsed enhanced interrogation techniques, which included waterboarding, extreme sleep and food deprivation, enclosures in coffin-like spaces, and intimidating prisoners while nude. These techniques were developed by John Bruce Jessen and James Elmer Mitchell, two psychologists uh, who ran a consulting company called Mitchell, Jessen, and Associates. The United States government paid Mitchell Jessen over $80 million to in part develop this program. Fast forward to September 2003 and Alyssa Peterson, a soldier in the 311th Military Intelligence Battalion of the 101st Airborne Division, is sent to Iraq to do interrogations. Peterson had recently completed an undergraduate degree in psychology and had studied Arabic in the Defense Language Institute. After only two days of working in what they called the cage, Peterson refused to be involved. It's unclear exactly what she was asked to do, but other colleagues described the use of enhanced interrogation techniques. Peterson was reassigned, but also reprimanded for showing too much, quote, empathy for the prisoners. On September 15th, she killed herself with her military-issued firearm. She left behind a notebook that tied her death to her participation in the interrogation tactics of the cage. This is a deeply tragic story, made all the more ironic by the fact that Bybee, Jessen, and Peterson, all the main players, are also members of our church. Bybee graduated from BYU, Jessen attended BYU-Idaho, and Peterson served a mission in the Netherlands. To state this more baldly, one of our brothers designed a program to intentionally harm, humiliate, <clears throat> and systematically abuse potential terrorists. Another one of our brothers gave the official endorsement to implement it. One of our sisters was then tasked to carry it out. After two days of practicing it, our sister took her own life. 
Perhaps the deepest point of irony in this story is that, ostensibly speaking, the only one of the three that did something wrong was Peterson in committing suicide. Bybee is now a circuit judge in the Circuit Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. Jessen was actually called as a bishop in 2012, only to step down a week later, not because of an institutional reprimand, but because in his own words, I just felt it would be unfair for me to bring that controversy to a lot of other people. And while the church has recently softened, it softened its rhetoric on suicide, it is still unequivocal, it's still, uh, excuse me, um, unequivocal that suicide is something wrong. Now, I mention this in part because it's also uh, shortly after 9-11-2001. However, in LDS history, there are, of course, there's, of course, another 9-11 that's incredibly significant, the 9-11 in 1857, when uh, other members of our church uh, murdered 120 other people at Mountain Meadows. Right, so this is again in 1857. Um, I happened to be at Harvard um, shortly after the publication of uh, Ron Walker and, and Rick Turley's uh, book here, Massacre at Mountain Meadows. And so they came by and uh, gave a brief presentation there with regard to their book. And I think it was Ron who said, um, after being asked, what are some of the main takeaways uh, that your research has, has led you to? And one of the things that he mentioned, um, and, and again, this is my paraphrase of what he said, um, one of the things that he realized is that evil is only skin deep, right? That beneath all of us lurks the possibility of deep, deep evil. What I want to do is to use um, these two stories as far as 9-11 are concerned uh, to flag something fairly significant that I see within our religious tradition. And that's the lack of what I'll call a deliberative ethics, right? In other words, um, a kind of ethic that requires us to think through or reason through morally problematic situations. Um, with the lack of a kind of deliberative ethic, it's oftentimes an ethics of authority that kind of fills in that space. And what I want to do is kind of tease that out a little bit. Um, I, instead of using the language of an ethic of authority or obedience to authority, um, I'll sometimes use the language of faith obedience, because as we'll see, this is the language that's used oftentimes, um, or at least sometimes within the church by the leaders of the church itself. Before we get there, though, let me tell you one more story, because I promised three, right? So this is not the story of Abraham and Isaac per se, but rather it involves a debate about the story of Abraham and Isaac that took place um, a number, took place a decade or so back um, on what we sometimes call the bloggernacle, which many of you may be familiar with. This is and was a loose confederation of LDS-themed blogs. Uh, that people participated in. I participated uh, quite extensively, actually, for the first probably um, uh, 10 years or so of 2000, 2010, uh, for the most part under a pseudonym at various blogs. Uh, the story that I want to tell you takes place at a blog that's still up and running, uh, one of the larger um, blogs, where a debate ensued about understanding the story of Abraham and Isaac. And one of the things that people were trying to assert is that there's a difference between quote-unquote liberal and conservative interpretations of the story of Abraham and Isaac. And I was trying to push back on this divide by suggesting that perhaps there's not so, so much of a distinction to be made between liberal and conservative interpretations. For instance, how many of you would seriously try to sacrifice your children if a leader of the church asked you to? 
And as I pushed on this uh, a little bit, there was finally one of the uh, permabloggers on this blog said something to the effect of, with the testimony that I have of President Monson, if he asked me to sacrifice one of my own children, I would do it. However, he quickly added, I don't think he would ever ask such a thing. Now, this story is made um, all the more interesting by earlier comments, I think, that the same blogger had made that it would be much easier for him to sacrifice my children instead of his own, uh, coupled by the fact that he actually, at the time, only lived about an hour away from me. And I'm not talking about like Utah, an hour, like 10 stakes away. I'm talking out here, an hour away, where we went to the same temple and he was in the stake that was, uh, that was next to me. Anyway, um, I, tell these, uh, I tell these stories again to kind of highlight this idea of uh, that the way in which our moral reasoning is oftentimes set within this context of obedience to authority. All right, so let me quote here very quickly from uh, R. Conrad Schultz, who was in at the time, the second quorum of the 12. This is from uh, April 2002 General Conference. He introduces this idea of faith obedience, and this is what he tells us. One of the sneaky ploys of the adversary is to have us believe that unquestioning obedience to the principles and commandments of God is blind obedience. His goal is to have us believe that we should be following our own worldly ways and selfish ambitions. This he does by persuading us that blindly following the prophets and obeying commandments is not thinking for ourselves. He teaches that it is not intelligent to do something just because we are told to do so by a living prophet or by prophets who speak to us from the scriptures. Our, under, our unquestioning obedience to the Lord's commandments is not blind obedience. We might call this faith obedience. Right again, so kind of setting up this idea, right, of unquestioning obedience uh, being rephrased here in terms of faith obedience. Now, to state this perhaps a little more baldly, we might jump back uh, to the 1940s here with Heber J. Grant, right, and his, his somewhat infamous statement uh, that we ought to always keep our eyes on the president of the church. And if he ever tells you to do anything and it is wrong and you do it, the Lord will bless you for it. Now, this is, of course, um, quite some time ago. Uh, Heber J. Grant died in 1945, 75 years, uh, of course, previous to now. Uh, but this also, of course, comes at the same time, too. We have this infamous remark, right, uh, published in the Improvement Era, 1945. When our leaders speak, the thinking has been done. Uh, a saying, of course, popularly uh, refuted by George Albert Smith in the following year, 1946, um, we don't, or at least I, I don't wonder, though, whether George Albert Smith was able to say this because Heber J. Grant had died already at this time. Now, going back to President Grant's quote of always keeping your eye on the prophet and doing something even if it's wrong, uh, if this was left 75 years ago, it would, of course, be much less of an issue. But this is a saying that gets resurrected a number of times, including by Ezra Taft Benson in General Conference in 1960. Marion G. Romney in the Enzyme in 1972. President Benson uses it again in his 14 Fundamentals talk at BYU in 1980. And it appears again in 2014 in the Relief Society and Priesthood uh, manuals. Um, these are, of course, are just some of the more official uh, publications among members. Um, this, this quote, of course, uh, appears at various kinds of places. It was used, for instance, by uh, Daniel Peterson in his uh, column in the Deseret News in 2011 as well. 
the way that I would kind of phrase this way of thinking is uh, not necessarily in terms of faith obedience per se, but this idea that somehow the might of the priesthood makes right. And whatever the priesthood commands us to do is somehow the right thing to do. And what I want to do here with regard to this reading of the Book of Mormon is to try to separate those two things. To show that the Book of Mormon actually poses a kind of criticism of this melding together of ecclesiastical and moral authority. All right, so let me kind of jump back here and go to, to Helaman 12 and get a, a running start into 3 Nephi chapter 6. Helaman 12 occurs as a part of Mormon's uh, lament in some regards for the situation at the time. Uh, we see something happening previous to this in Helaman, quite like what we see in 3 Nephi, the people vacillating between goodness and evil um, in a short number of years. And in Helaman 12, Mormon kind of pauses this narrative to give us his lament. And here's a very quick excerpt of that. And thus we can behold how false and also the unsteadiness of the hearts of the children of men. Oh, how foolish and how vain and how evil and devilish and how quick to do iniquity and how slow to do good are the children of men. Yea, how quick to hearken unto the words of the evil one and to set their hearts upon the vain things of the world. Yea, how quick to be lifted up in pride. Yea, how quick to boast and do all manner of that which is iniquity, and how slow they are to remember the Lord their God. Behold, they do not desire that the Lord their God, who hath created them, who should rule and reign over them, and they will not that he should be their guide. Oh, how great is the nothingness of the children of men! Yea, even they are less than the dust of the earth. Right? This is not a pretty picture of, of humanity, right? And there's this fantastic, this savage rejoinder, right, of how great is the nothingness of the children of men. One of the things that Moroni here alerts us to is the vulnerability that all of us have to being good, right? That somehow we are quick to be foolish and vain and evil, right? Again, kind of this reminder similar to the one offered by the uh, massacre at Mountain Meadows. I think um, uh, uh, present at the time, our Elder Uchtdorf, um, in his 2014 um, General Conference address kind of gets at part of this. Uh, at the time, he gave uh, this talk called Lord is it I, which is, of course, based off of Matthew 26, 22. Uh, this is set in the context of the Last Supper, right, where Jesus has 12 gathered with him. And he says that one of them is going to betray him. And in Matthew 26, 22 says, they were exceedingly sorrowful and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? Now, the way that Uchtdorf and a number of others kind of take this is with regard to offering up the real possibility that it could have been one of them, right? That could have betrayed Jesus, right? So in other words, this seems to be a sincere question, right? That the, uh, um, that the uh, disciples are asking. Uh, Uchtdorf doesn't use this language, um, but, but I think it kind of fits. It really is about this question of self-deception, right? Is it possible that we could deceive ourselves to the point that we think that there's no way that the it could be the I, right? That there's no way that I could be the one that would have betrayed Jesus, right? Of course, Judas could, but it could not have been I. 
And I, again, I think part of what Uchtdorf's uh, reading of Matthew 26 is trying to do here is to alert us to the possibility, right, of our own frailty, our own frailty to, to goodness, so to speak. Uh, there's a way in which we might be able to deceive ourselves into thinking that we are somehow beyond reproach, right, that there's no way that we could have been the one to, uh, to betray Jesus. Of course, keeping in mind that it was actually in the end, it's one of the 12, right? It's one of the 12 apostles who are the ones that actually betrayed Jesus. All right, so let's get to 3 Nephi 6 here and talk about some of the uh, specifics. In the beginning of the chapter, we're again told that they had been gathering together into one group, and they then returned to their lands and rebuilt their, uh, their cities. And we're told in verse 4 that they began again to prosper and to wax great. Year 28 then goes on with continual peace. Year 29 then moves into this era of some being lifted up unto pride and boastings because of their exceedingly great riches. And the people began to be distinguished by ranks. Now we're not told here in the text the nature of their pride or their exceedingly great riches. It'd be interesting to think about perhaps the role that the church played at this time. Was a church perhaps part of the accumulation of the, uh, of the riches? Anyway, that's, um, of course, not a part of the, uh, the narrative. We're told, though, that there thus became a great inequality in all the land, insomuch that the church began to be broken up. Yea, insomuch that in the 30th year the church was broken up in all the land, save it were among a few of the Lamanites who were converted unto the true faith. So it seems here, right, that what ends up happening is a fracturing of the church. And in many respects, this is kind of similar to the apostasy narrative that many of us have been raised with, right? That there was a falling away of most members of the church, except for the few, right? The few of the Lamanites who were converted unto the true faith. So it seems, again, that the rest of the church had fallen away and the Lamanites were then, these, the few of these Lamanites were then the preservers. Of the, uh, of the true faith. Although we ought to keep in mind that Nephi is kind of floating out there somewhere as well. This becomes significant though, because we're told in verse 20 that there began to be men inspired from heaven and sent forth, standing among the people in all the land, preaching and testifying boldly of the sins and iniquities of the people. All right, so it's this really interesting question, I think that's, that kind of comes up here. Where do these people come from, right? And where do they get their authority? This, again, seems to be, if we, again, read the, the narrative as it occurs, it doesn't seem that these group of men are coming, at least solely, from the Lamanites who had preserved the church, right? Rather, these seem to be men who are simply inspired from heaven and sent forth, right? So, again, these seem to be men that are operating outside of the ecclesiastical structure of the church, providing some kind of a moral framework for the people, right? Um, this is, I think, actually not uh, entirely dissimilar from other people that we've seen in, the, uh, in the, the Book of Mormon. Lehi, for instance, seems to get his moral authority from the vision that he has. Abednai appears, right, and uh, of course criticizes uh, King Noah at the time and Samuel the Lamanite. These are all um, individuals that seem to operate at least outside of a kind of ecclesiastical structure, even if we understand ecclesiastical structure very broadly, right, recognizing that in the time of Lehi, there certainly was not the structure of the church that we then see by, uh, by third Nephi. 
this also is in part, of course, a kind of Old Testament trope, right, where we see, uh, we see prophets operating outside of the priesthood structure. All right, so the priesthood structure, of course, being uh, controlled by one of the, uh, the 12 tribes, the tribe of Levi. Um, many of the prophets were not necessarily a part of that, right? And so they seem to, in some regards, be operating outside the bounds of the priesthood. So in other words, in the Old Testament, we seem to have a kind of distinction between, again, a kind of ecclesiastical authority or priesthood authority, and then a kind of moral authority, right, that operates with regard to the prophets. One of the interesting things that happens in Jeremiah 26, and this is part of the account of Jeremiah's ministry, is that he goes and he ministers, of course, calling the people to repentance in the temple, right? So he goes to one of the courts of the temple and calls the people to, to repentance in the temple. And we're told that in Jeremiah 26, people didn't like that, of course, and so they seek to kill him. Part of the people that seek to kill Jeremiah are the priests, Right? So again, we immediately have here the ecclesiastical structure responding in a negative way to the moral reprimand of the authority of this Jeremiah figure that appears in Jeremiah 26. I think that something similar is kind of happening here again in 3 Nephi 6, and allow me to maybe elaborate a bit more on that. So what we find in the next verse, in verse 21, there were many of the people who were exceedingly angry because of those who testified on these things. And those who were angry were chiefly the chief judges and they who had been high priests and lawyers. So what I wanna do here is to focus on uh, particularly one of the groups of people that were angry, right, about these men who are inspired from heaven. The list here includes three, the chief judges, the high priests, and the lawyers. It's, of course, uh, easy, I think, to read these with regard to perhaps governmental figures, right? That you have these chief judges, high priests, who are perhaps some kinds of advisors or something, and then these lawyers, right? So the government is responding in a particular way because of the threat that these men of heaven provide to the kind of order, the kind of government that they want to maintain. Um, let me suggest, though, that's not what's going on. And the, the way I want to do that is by focusing on this term, this idea of the high priest, right, and its appearance throughout the Book of Mormon. So high priest or variants, including things like high priesthood, appear 35 times throughout the Book of Mormon. Uh, there are only two appearances where the text might be able to be read in a non-ecclesiastical way. Even in those two appearances, though, it, it does seem very possible that it can be read, referring again to some kind of an ecclesiastical position. The rest of them are clearly referring to an ecclesiastical position, though. So one of those, uh, one of the appearances, or actually a number of the appearances, refers to the leader of the church, particularly Alma, right? So this is now Alma the Younger, who in Mosiah 23, we're told Alma was their high priest, he being the founder of the church, right? And so Alma is referred to a number of times as the high priest, as are his successors who are leading the church. We're told later in Alma 46 that Helaman and the high priests did also maintain order in the church. Yet even for the space of four years did they have much peace and rejoicing in the church. So again, this tends to be the way that the term gets used in the Book of Mormon. The most concentrated usages of this idea of high priest are, of course, in Alma 13, where the high priest is, as we'll see here, uh, very explicitly a kind of priesthood position. Right? So here are parts of uh, 8, 9, and 10. Now, they were ordained after this manner, being called with a holy calling and ordained with a holy ordinance, and taking upon them the high priesthood of the holy order, which calling and ordinance and high priesthood is without beginning or end. Thus they become high priests forever, after the order of the Son, 
the only begotten of the Father, who is without beginning days or end of years, who is full of grace, equity, and truth. And thus it is. Amen. Now, as I said concerning the holy order, this high priesthood, there were many who were ordained and became high priests of God. And it was on account of their exceeding faith and repentance and their righteousness before God, they choosing to repent and work righteousness rather than to perish. So again, this tends to be the way that this idea of high priest is used throughout the Book of Mormon. Now, I think my reading here of Third Nephi is strengthened by what we'll see in the uh, you know in our version of the the footnotes uh, in Third Nephi twenty six. So the, one of the footnotes to this um, uh, to this um, verse. Uh, refers over to DNC 121.37, which, of course, we're familiar with. Uh, Joseph Smith here talking about the connection between priesthood power and the virtues that one ought to have in maintaining that priesthood power. But it also refers to the topical guide under the apostasy of individuals. Right? So it seems, again, that this is actually one of the acceptable readings of the text, right? this idea that the high priests that are involved in the persecution of the men inspired from heaven are actually former leaders, perhaps, of the church just a couple of years previous to that. Okay, so here's my dialogue shout out, right? So this is brought to you, being sponsored by Dialogue. Uh, Roger Terry has a, a couple of really good um, articles that were published in 2018 issues two, in two parts. Uh, called Authority and Priesthood in the LDS Church. And I want to highlight here, uh, he makes a point similar to the one that I'm making by looking at DNC 12141, which he quotes, and so you'll remember it, I'm sure, as it's read here. Uh, but this is, I think, a very productive misreading of the text. Right? And he's aware that the, the text ought not to be punctuated like this, but I think it's a very productive misreading. So he says, if we truncate DNC 12141 before it runs off onto the list of qualities a leader should employ in exercising priesthood authority, a very important lesson comes suddenly into focus. And here he quotes from that passage. No power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood, period. A man cannot maintain power or influence over somebody simply by virtue of the fact that he holds the priesthood or occupies a priesthood office, nor should he try because if he does, he loses the power of the priesthood. But again, I think this is uh, making some of this similar point, right? This decoupling of a kind of ecclesiastical authority and then a, uh, a moral authority. All right, so back to 3 Nephi 6, we had been looking at um, verse 21, which highlights the people who were angry about the men who had been uh, inspired by heaven. One of those groups you'll recall we're focusing on here are the, uh, the high priests. So what happens um, in the uh, remaining portions of the chapter is that we find that the men that are inspired by heaven, uh, they're captured and they're secretly put to death by the judges which we come to learn is contrary to the laws of the land. So in other words, the death penalty was certainly possible, but the judges didn't have the authority to simply sentence somebody to death. It had to be, it seems, a part of a larger trial. So those judges that had sentenced the men inspired by heaven to death are then put on trial themselves. And we come to learn in a few other passages here that now it came to pass that those judges had many friends and kindreds, and the remainder, yea, even almost the lawyers, almost all the lawyers and the high priests, did gather themselves together and unite with the kindreds of those judges who were to be tried according to the law. 
And they did covenant one with another to destroy the governor and to establish a king over the land, that the land should no more be at liberty, but should be subject unto kings. Um, what I want to do for the next few minutes is to focus here on verse 30, right? This idea of establishing a king over the land, right? This seems to be, again, part of their endeavors, right? What they want to do is to, you know, instead of having a kind of system of judges, is now establish a king or a ruler uh, over the land. Now, we see this refrain, of course, throughout the Book of Mormon, as well as in the Bible, uh, in the Book of Mormon, this warning or this hesitancy to establish some kind of a king occurs uh, in the first books of Nephi, as well as the books of Mosiah, Alma, and, uh, and Ether. Now, this, of course, is a, a, a whole complex thing that's going on. Part of it appears to be a criticism of a form of government, right? So this fear about the way in which the kings are going to structure authority for their society but it also seems to be a criticism of the kind of leadership that very well could result from uh, having a king. Part of the style of leadership that tends to occur from having a king is that the king takes the place of God. So we see this particularly in the biblical warnings against having a king. Right? The children of Israel want to have a king so they can be like the other nations who also have kings. And this at least is implicitly about replacing God. Right? And so what we have, of course, is God ought to be the actual king. And instead of that, the people want to replace him with a person. Right? That king then comes to take the place of God. One of the other refrains that we see throughout the scriptures is that these kings are going to rule over you. Right? They're going to control you in many, in many senses. They're going to be able to extract goods from you and give them to whomever they want. Uh, this is, of course, oddly enough, one of the things that come up, the complaints by Laman and Lemuel that are made very early in the Book of Mormon, that Nephi is seeking to rule over them right, and rule over their family. Part of what they're saying, of course, is as the older brothers, they have the right to rule, so to speak. But part of me also wonders sometimes if they are on to something, right? That part of what Nephi is trying to do is to exert a particular kind of authority over them uh, that may not always be a righteous kind of authority. One of the things that seems to occur as people take up this idea of being king is, again, because they take the place of God, they become as God. Right? And when they become as God, they, become, they go or they move to a situation in which they're beyond reproach. Right? Because now they are God, right? similar to the way that God can do no wrong, they similarly can do no wrong as well. All right, so let me kind of highlight the way that I see this playing out in some respects in our contemporary times. Uh, this comes from Lynn Robbins, who is a uh, president in the uh, first quorum of the 70, uh, from an October 2014 uh, general conference address titled, Which Way Do You Face? And this is the way that the address opens. Uh, Which way do you face? President Boyd K. Packer surprised me with this puzzling question. While we are traveling together in my very first assignment as a new 70, without an explanation to put the question in context, I was baffled. A 70, he continued, does not represent the people to the prophet, but the prophet to the people. Never forget which way you face. Right? So again, this is 
kind of very stark reminder about the way in which the authority of the church is structured, right? So the 70, oddly enough, does not face toward God, but faces the prophet, right? So this kind of becomes the way in which, again, this, uh, this structure is, uh, is placed. Maybe I'll, I'll kind of interject here um, somewhat of a, a personal uh, vignette. Um, while I was uh, in graduate school living in Boston, um, I was a, a ward missionary. And one of the men who um, was investigating the church wanted to come and attend one of the general conference sessions. And of course, he had been meeting with the missionaries as well as myself for some time. And the missionaries um, had uh, been kind of building up President Hinckley at the time, telling him what a prophet President Hinckley was and how grateful we were to have prophets and the role of prophets. And um, he then was quite excited to attend uh, this, um, this session of conference. We went to the priesthood session. And um, as conference proceeded, it was really interesting to sit there with a new set of eyes, right? Normally you sit there, of course, and you become accustomed to hearing certain kinds of things. But here I was, I'd pick this man up, introduce him to the first time to the uh, uh, general authorities, the leaders of our church. And I was sitting with him and listening from an outsider's ears, if that makes sense, to the way in which we sometimes talk about authorities in the church. And of course, a lot of the talk were expressing the gratitude that we have for having a prophet, a number of folks quoting President Hinckley, kind of building to President Hinckley's address. And President Hinckley got up and spoke and gave a, a quite a wonderful talk. Immediately afterwards, uh, this investigator leaned over to me and he said, you know, after all of that buildup, I was really expecting something. And yeah, you can't help, right, but, but feel for him in, in, in some regards uh, in that way. All right, um, coming from one of the more, I think, kind of uh, uh, infamous quotes with regard to this idea of being beyond reproach uh, comes from President uh, Oaks. Um, who repeats this a number of times. So first in 1985, he uses it, and then in 1987, 1991, and then in 2008. He says, criticism is particularly objectionable when it is directed toward church authorities, general or local. Jude condemns those who speak evil of dignities. Evil speaking of the Lord's anointed is in a class by itself. It's one thing to depreciate a person who exercises corporate power, or even government power. It's quite another uh, thing to criticize or depreciate a person for the performance of an office to which he has or she has been called of God. It does not matter that the criticism is true. As Elder George Richards, president of the Council of the Twelve, said in a conference address in April 1947, when we say anything bad about the leaders of the church, whether true or false, we tend to impair their influence and their usefulness and are thus working against the Lord and his cause. It's interesting, right, the way in which these quotes from the 40s get resurrected, right, throughout uh, our kind of contemporary leaders' addresses. Now, in the 1987 version of the, the quote by uh, President Oaks, which appeared in the Enzyme, he adds this um, after the quote that I just read. Uh, the counsel against speaking evil of the church leaders is not so much for the benefit of the leaders as it is for the spiritual well-being of members who are prone to murmur and find fault. The church leaders I know are durable people. They made their way successfully in a world of unrestrained criticism before they received their current callings. They have no personal need for protection. Right? It's, it's 
quite a thing, right, where you have an authoritative statement made by an authority trying to protect their authority for the sake of supposedly protecting those over whom they have authority. All right. Um, this is a, somewhat of a saying that, that we're um, quite familiar with, although here we have it said by uh, Elder David B. Haight in 1992 General Conference. Right? He says quite clearly that the church is not a democracy, it's a kingdom. And of course, right, in, in, um, I, I don't disagree with that uh, in, in so many ways. Um, we perhaps ought not expect it to, to be a democracy, but it is interesting to think about whether or not the kingdom that we have is run by the king of the universe, the king of the scriptures, so to speak, or by a number of kings that we've instead set up. And they've, of course, fostered that setting up and we treat them, of course, as such. Anyway, so what we find um, in my reading, at least of these passages of, of the Book of Mormon is a kind of warning, right? So the Book of Mormon warns us about the danger of making the leaders of the church into kings, right? In part because this idea of ecclesiastical authority perhaps ought not be synonymous with moral authority, right? The might of the priesthood does not make right. All right. So in just some brief kind of concluding uh, comments um, here, I'll just finish with kind of my retooling of a uh, serenity prayer. So God grant me the courage to question my leaders, the humility to accept their answers, and the prudence to know when courage becomes arrogance and humility becomes complicity. And so part, I think, of, of what I'm trying to get at here, maybe in these uh, concluding um, remarks, is this idea, right, of continuing to be open to this, the possibility of inspiration. And I think when, when leaders use this idea of inspiration, in some sense, it's asking us to trust them, right? And that, of course, ought not to be beyond us. On the other hand, right, this idea of moral authority, I think, exists far beyond this idea of ecclesiastical authority. And I find it quite interesting that the Book of Mormon itself provides us a kind of tool for trying to decouple those things, right, and re-raise this question of moral authority. So I'll stop speaking now. Thank you. Thank you, Michael, um, for this incredibly thoughtful and, um, and relevant lesson. And I especially appreciated uh, the stories that you brought in to begin to help us kind of frame our thinking about this um, in our history and in our contemporary times. Um, I'm struck by thinking about your serenity prayer that you ended with and um, some of the other comments that you've made and some of the things that came across in chat um, really emphasizing this first step um, and acknowledging our nothingness and kind of taking that humility and what that can lead to and what its absence, you know, keeps us from, um, from, from realizing. Um, one of our um, uh, attendees today talks about how um, only by acknowledging our nothingness can we be filled with an authentic recognition and empathy for others, um, which I think is really important. But you've also um, brought in the ways that not recognizing our nothingness um, or, or 
can, can lead to other problems as well. Um, do you want to maybe say something about, about that? Um, I, I th so I think it's important, right? So this idea, we might put it with regards to something like epistemic vulnerability or, or something like this, right? Like th this idea that, well, first of all, right, learning, I, I believe, is predicated on a kind of vulnerability, right? This idea that we don't know all, that we can certainly learn, um, that we're open to perhaps being, uh, to being changed. So I, I can go on and on with regard to, to vulnerability, although it's been a while since I've, I've looked at the material. Um, but I do think, right, that part of what's at the heart of vulnerability is being susceptible to change and being transformed, right? So I think vulnerability put in a kind of positive sense um, it's not simply about being kind of this openness to harm per se, right, but rather about a kind of openness to transformation, right? So the vulnerability that we have with regard to the people that we love is not simply that they could be harmed or that they could harm us, but rather that they can change us in ways that we can't entirely predict, right? And if we use that as a way of thinking about a kind of epistemic vulnerability, right, that we ought to be open to being changed and transformed by the things that we encounter, uh, recognizing that we're not always going to be able to control the way in which those things change and transform us. Right. Anyway, so this kind of opens a, a door, at least, I think, for greater kinds of, of understanding and greater kinds of openness. Right. It also, I think, sheds some of this light with regards to you know, I mean, again, like going back to the story of, of Judas Iscariot, right? I mean, Jesus could have been, you know, betrayed all kinds of different ways. Perhaps Judas fulfills certain kinds of prophecies and things like this, right? But, I mean, you have, again, a hand-picked person who's going to be the one that betrays him, right? And I think it's quite interesting that, for instance, when our church, when we built the temple in, in Italy, um, we set up this whole thing, uh, a series of statues, right? These kinds of, of Romanesque statues, um, all with the quorum of the, the original quorum of the 12th, right? It's quite interesting, though, that there is no statue to Judas Iscariot, right? Rather, Paul replaces the statue of Judas, and to me, you know, one of the things I think that we might be able to read in this is this idea of invulnerability or the denial of vulnerability among our leaders, right? That we don't want to recognize the original leader, right? Who led to the betrayal, right? Instead, we prefer to replace him, right? With somebody that we see as being invulnerable. Michael, that's a... Uh leads to a question I've seen in the chat and, and would like to bring together as a, in, in this way, You've, you have talked about the either combining or, the, or the, that we should not combine ecclesiastical authority with moral authority, um, or when you talk about a king with legal authority, I suppose. Um, and, but then there is the question that we, even though many of the comments from modern church leaders have distinguished, uh, even when we're not right, um, even when the criticism is legitimate, uh, stay with us, um, that over, overarching, uh, this is a little clumsy, overarching our comments like we get out of the um, uh, Declaration number one in the Doctrine and Covenants about always being right, about not, not just ecclesiastical authority, not just 
moral authority, but of being right. And uh, that would you would you comment about that as a as a as a combined um, kind of authority? Yeah, yeah, I, and I may have to have you restate that because I was actually also scrolling through the chat at the same time, and I saw <laughs> uh, uh, Charles Randall. This Charles Randall Paul was the one who who submitted this question. I just want to give him a uh, a quick shout out. We uh, lived in the same ward as Jaron uh, and Elizabeth uh, Paul in our ward in Boston, um, and actually had met Randy Paul uh, a few uh, a few times. Um, anyway, um, so anyway, something about the combination of authority, though, right? Uh, the, that you had mentioned. Combination of, of ecclesiastical authority and moral authority and assertions, and this is uh, Brother Paul's comment, and assertions that they are right, not, not just have authority, but that they are correct or right or, or, or God will uh, deny them um, as a way to, uh, to assert that they are right. Yeah, right. I mean, the way that I read these kinds of statements, so, you know, such as in, in official declaration number one and these kinds of things, right, is a way of reinforcing the implicit idea that they can never be wrong, right? Like, in other words, if this is the way that the rhetoric, the rhetoric works, right, that, in other words, um, if I was wrong, God would remove me, right? So, therefore, I'm still here, so, therefore, you know, I'm not wrong. Right. This, uh, anyway, so it's kind of couched into it. I mean, if I were to come up with certain kinds of certain kinds of guidelines, right, with regards to the 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 limits of of authority, right, kind of broadly speaking, at least within the church, uh, part of it would be with regards to um, you ought not use your authority to reinforce your own authority or, or something to that effect, right? Like that, that you can't make these kinds of statements, right? Like you can't use your authority to simply shore up your own authority, right? Like that, that, that's not the way, that's not the way that authority I think actually ought to, ought to come. And I'm saying that somewhat clumsily here. Um, one of the others though might be something to the effect of um, if, uh, you know, if you have some kind of a policy, let's say a policy on excluding the children of, of homosexual couples from being baptized in the church, you initiate some kind of a policy like that, um, and then you go out and provide reasons for the policy. Um, once you initiate those reasons, and you're not saying, I'm simply doing this on the basis of inspiration, once you open the door to reasons, I think then you open the door to discussion. Right, so you open the door to questioning those reasons. You can, you cannot then, or you ought not then, foreclose discussion as was done actually by President Nelson by coming around and saying, "Oh, this was actually done by by revelation." Right, so like you cannot provide reasons and then foreclose discussion on those reasons. Right, with with regard to authority. Um, Anyway, maybe one other thing I have to point out as well, right? I mean, uh, I'm not sure it's entirely possible nor, nor desirable to completely separate this idea of moral authority and ecclesiastical authority, right? But rather what I'm trying to, to say is that we ought to have much more space than we currently do with regard to this idea of moral authority. Right, right. so we, we've had um, attendees who have noted that uh, there's some tension between this idea of ecle ecclesiastical authority equaling moral authority, this idea that the true believer um, should give up their moral judgment to leaders, um, and then the the kind of you know dangers dangers of that, and that we that we really do need to separate out um, and to reclaim that that moral authority. 
thanks for addressing a little bit uh, LGBTQ issues. Um, our attendees have, um, have identified that and issues of race as, um, as ways that they're feeling acutely the, the message of this lesson. Um, uh, troubled by a sense that they sometimes feel like they need to sacrifice, um, for instance, um, their, their grandchildren or how they approach this issue um, because of the statements um, of, of church leaders. I wonder if you could maybe say just a little bit more um, in relationship to those issues as well as it to, uh, to thinking about our history of race in the church. Yeah, um, so a number of thoughts. Um, not very well, not very well organized, though. Um, you know, so interestingly, so if we talk about kind of a, a, an alternative, one alternative, right, we see uh, perhaps somewhat of the, as the result of something like Vatican II, right? So you have like Joseph uh, Ratzinger, who eventually goes on to become the Pope, um, say something to the effect of above and beyond this idea of ecclesiastical authority lies our own conscience, right? That when it comes down to it, it, you know, to thine own self be true or something to the fact. And that's, of course, problematized by what we're talking about here with regard to propensity towards self-deception and these other things as well. Um, but at least there's this, this kind of, this clear statement, right? I mean, I can't, you know, what would happen, right? If one of our leaders in the church got up in general conference and said something like this, right? That, above and beyond our authority to tell you what's right is your own conscience. And if you feel that something is right, you know, we'll still move forward as an institution as we feel is right, but you have the obligation to follow after that. Anyway, that, that you know, I mean, that could open up all kinds of, of interesting things. Part, I think, of, of what's going on, and this goes back to the early portion of the presentation where I'm saying that we lack some kind of a deliberative or at least a robust deliberative ethic. Um, is I, I think, right, that, and this is a, in part because of, of, of the kind of church that we have, the kind of church leaders that we have, right, that they're not trained to think theologically or, or even pastorally in, in many regards, right? Uh, they're, they're trained to think organizationally. Um, and so what we, what we oftentimes find, uh, therefore, um, I think at least, is the... Um, the fear, perhaps, that if if moral authority does not come from priesthood authority, then what does it come from, right? So my, my hunch is that sometimes that the leaders of the church see this idea of, of the, the priesthood authority, you know, as the unifying, the social fabric, so to speak, of what keeps us together, right? And if you get rid of that social fabric and don't have something to replace it, then what's going to happen to the community? Right? Now, this is a very kind of consequentialist argument in terms of the, the how things are structured, right? Um, but, you know, I mean, to speak specifically with regards to things like LGBTQ uh, plus issues, I mean, for, for, for me, right, this is just a, a personal reaction. People are more important than, than institutions and, and organizations, right? I mean, like in the end, right, I mean, I'd rather be with the people that I love than lonely in an institution that I believe is always right. You know, I mean, this is, anyway, just speaking personally. There's a, there's a thread that's uh, interesting to pick up, that we are um, 
that the that the church, the LDS tradition, has a tradition of of uh, a lay ministry, and of um, all endowed members being anointed. That there is a a a a, a tradition of um, participation of individual personal revelation of agency being exercised that makes all of us part of the story of moral authority. At least that's a way it could be described. And um, interesting to match that up against comments and pressures that want to take ecclesiastical authority more and more into the moral authority realm. So maybe we can also bring in um, Charles Randall Paul's co recent comment. I think it just came to panelists, so not everybody has seen this, but I think this also speaks to um, this question and idea that Christians raise. The whole idea of divine king is intention with councils in heaven and common consent being the way eternal intelligences come together, uh, come to truth or righteousness. What would our metaphor for God be today in societies that knew nothing of monarchy? Would not God be termed a leader that engages in conversations with friends to come to what is right to do together? God is the man of, uh, the man of holiness, a leader of intelligences. Yes or no? Yeah, but Brother Paul's much more optimistic, I suppose, than, than, than I am in, uh, <laughs> in that regard. Um, yeah, right. I mean, that's, I think, you know, a, a fantastic, uh, fantastic thought experiment. Um, you know, I mean, I'm not a, a uh, historian of the church, right? And so I'm not entirely familiar, as perhaps I should be, with this idea of common consent, right? And, and how the church might be able to, to be reconceptualized, right? I, I do think, uh, I see part of, of part of the, the melding of um, ecclesiastical and moral authority, I think, has always been there, I think, within the church. Um, and part of, I think, part of, part of it, of course, I think also comes about somewhat organically in terms of the need of the organization, uh, primarily because as we've been mentioning, some kind of a lay ministry. But yeah, sorry, I don't have anything profound I suppose to say about that. All right, lots of other um, great comments here. Um, how would you interact with the judge? Um, if you, uh, and the psychologist mentioned if you met them at a priesthood meeting, just kind of another thought experience, uh, experiment about um, trying to think about how personally to approach this kind of um, problem and tension. Yeah, and I think this is the, you know, I mean, this is the, the, the fascinating thing, right, with regards to the complexity of, of human nature. Right. I mean, we, again, always like to think that I would have done something different, right? That like, if I was at Mountain Meadows, I would not have pulled the trigger, right? Like I would have set up, but I don't know, you know, um, if I was a psychologist that was trained, you know, in particular kinds of ways and believed that there was an existential threat to my country, you know, I mean... I, you know, I mean, I would, I would like to think that I have the moral fortitude, 
right, to, to be able to think through the issue and, and come down as what I now see, of course, in hindsight, right, being uh, the thing that's clearly right. Um, but on the other hand, right, like I, I, part of my criticism, I suppose, is the lack of tools of thinking through this kind of thing. Right. And so I'm not trying to, to I don't blame any anyone in particular necessarily. Right. I mean, it's a part part of it is our church. Part of it is our society. Right. Just I mean. Yeah. Anyway, so I mean, I, I still see and we may very well have people that are related to a number of these figures that I've discussed here today. And I mean, nothing but love for for all the people that were involved, um, you know, my brothers and sisters. Yeah, and that goes back to this humility and the quotes you brought in from Elder Uchtdorf's talk about trying to ask, you know, is it I? And recognizing that propensity and possibility within all of us. Um, so I'm also struck in, in thinking about um, this lesson and so many recently about inequality as a symptom of wickedness. Um, and how this um, tension over kind of moral versus ecclesiastical authority comes into how we think about inequality. Yeah, I mean, so this is kind of something that I was, I was hinting at, right, as, as I was going through the uh, third Nephi um, chapter six, um, where you wonder, right, if you have these broadening inequalities um, you have two questions, right? Like, what was the role of the church in these inequalities, right? And what ought the role of church, uh, what ought the role of the uh, church to have been, I suppose, right, within that, within that context? Um, right, I mean, yeah. Um, within that time, right, I mean, you, you have these, these in, incredible questions, right, about, um, did the church, did the accumulation of wealth, it is part of what the Book of Mormon's critiquing there, the accumulation of wealth within the church. You know what I mean? Like, who knows, right? I mean, um, certainly there were leaders of the church that were involved within these inequalities, right? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I obviously, I, I, have the, I have the nonstop thought, right? I mean, what would God say about the amount of wealth that we've accumulated in our church today, right? I mean, um, you know, um, I understand the idea of a, of a rainy day, um, and I think it's a very pertinent question about whether or not we're living in a very rainy time period right now through this pandemic, and whether or not there's more that the church ought to do, even though its investment portfolio may have taken a hit, you know. I guess maybe the last um, question I'll bring up is, or comment, um, is it seems that there's, that we have tension over this notion of moral and ecclesiastical authority. And we, and President Holland and President Uchtdorf in particular have, have raised the idea that we're uh, called by God to these positions of leadership, but we're not perfect. Uh, be patient with us, recognize that we make mistakes and that church leaders in the past have made mistakes. Um, but it seems that there's you know, such a tension between that and then the obedience, the faith obedience. Um, yeah, and this is, this is in part why I was saying, right, it's hard. I think the fear is, so in other words, um, 
wouldn't it be in many regards wonderful if, if we could have one of the leaders of the church get up in a general conference and say, I'm sorry, right? And I'm sorry for, you know, these, the many wrongs that have been done by us in our name in the past, right? Like you think about what a healing opportunity that, that could be for so many people. It, it becomes incredibly more complicated though, I think as we move now into a more contemporary time period right, where the kind of, of healing and the complicated feelings that are involved in something like the uh, 2015 um, exclusion uh, proclamation, right, um, if, if I remember my dates here correctly. Um, you know, but, but again, I think the, the, the fear is there, right, like the fear is a slippery slope, right, if we, if we consents to this idea, right? So you have these hints by folks like Elder Uchtdorf, right? There have been things that we've said that we've, you know, that we've been wrong on. And if you read between the lines, he didn't say this, right? But if you read between the lines on something like the race and the priesthood essay, right? Like there's all these kinds of things, right? Where essentially it says, you know, there are many who are rejoicing, right? Like, like at the lifting of this. So what does that imply, right? Like how are they feeling beforehand? And what does that mean, right? Like in terms of their feelings beforehand. Um, if you could have that kind of healing, but instead, right, we're oftentimes left with this thing where you have um, Elder or President Nelson visiting the NAACP and locking arms with the leaders, right, kind of reenacting this Selma moment or something, right, like reenacting some of these iconic moments from, from the civil rights movement when we have no right to be doing that. You know, like that, you know, the, the apology hasn't come first beyond that. You have, um, you know, who was it in the 12, I think very recently saying uh, that they loved Martin Luther King, right? Like even, back, you know, I mean, like, I'm, I'm sorry, right? Like, I don't know, I don't know if I buy that, right? Um, and I don't know, I mean, so, you know, I mean, my, my, my deep hope, right, is that we can find a way to say that I'm wrong, right? That we can find a way as a people to say that we've been wrong and we're, you know, we could be wrong again. And the question is how we hang on to each other as a kind of community, right? If, if we're willing to make that step. And maybe that's a step that's made by faith not knowing what's gonna to happen to our community. So maybe um, going back to your serenity prayer, and if I had it in front of me, I would read it again and think about it in terms of us as individuals, as well as perhaps uh, an institution. Uh, thank you, uh, Michael. Oh, Christian? Oh, I... I not let us I just, end? No, I just, I just wanted to reflect that, the, um, that I hear Michael's last point, and, I want, and I, because I loved it, I want to underline it as suggesting that separating ecclesiastical authority and moral authority would also be helpful for those with ecclesiastical authority. It would permit those with ecclesiastical authority to say, I was wrong. In other words, to be, uh, if, if you are attempting to maintain or to or to hold on to moral authority, it's hard to say you're wrong. And, and so uh, that I, I hear that point and I just wanted to underline it, that I think, it's, I think this lesson is good for everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you everyone.
We'll close today with a prayer which will be offered. I hope, although I don't see him right now, that he'll hop on. Um, Dr. Russell Arben Fox, and hope you will join us next week when we explore more of Third Nephi with Margaret Blair Young. Okay, I don't, I don't see him back on. We had him with us earlier. Um, oh, there he is. There he is. Okay, so I will do the official introduction. <laughs> Dr. Fox and his wife, Melissa, and their two younger daughters, the two older ones having moved out and on with their lives, live in Wichita, Kansas, where he is a professor of political science at Friends University, a small Christian liberal arts college. If you received our latest amazing issue of dialogue in the mail last week or have checked it out online uh, you may know that it includes an article by by professor fox uh, who's a long-standing associate of dialogue and our former uh, book review editor uh, his article in this issue is entitled what size of city and what sort of city could or should the city of zion be uh, we invite you to check out that article and more at dialoguejournal.com Thank you. Father in heaven, we're grateful for the technology that allows us to continue to commune together and share thoughts about the scriptures together despite the pandemic. We're grateful for the training of many people like Mike Ling and so many others that have contributed to this sharing. Um, We are appreciative of the blessings that have uh, attended our lives. We pray for those that struggle uh, in this time of pandemic, struggle over matters of health, struggle over matters of income, and especially struggle over matters of faith. And we're grateful again for the community of people that we're part of, the community of experts and the community of of sisters and brothers that help lift up our faith and uh, help us find in the scriptures and in one another the resources to help us go forward in strength. Please forgive our sins, Father, and please be with us for the rest of this Sabbath day. We say this in Jesus' name. Amen.